Welcome everyone to First Principles Podcast. As always, you are joined by your hosts, Trees, and I'm with my co-host. That's right, Elliot here. What's up, Elliot? So today is the discussion that we're going to be talking about the rational optimist or the rational optimistic approach to environmentalism. Oftentimes you hear environmentalists, or from what I hear anyway, from our assessment, is that it's kind of a, a pessimistic type of person. They're not too uh, optimistic about the future. There's so much doom and gloom. There's environmental catastrophes. There's going to be uh, you know, more extreme weather conditions. They're going to wipe out um, cities that are going to wipe out people that are living close to the coasts. And a lot of negativity that's associated with environmental people in general. So we want to talk about this and try to maybe paint a different type of picture for you guys to try to think of environmentalism from a more positive perspective. Of course, not naively positive because we don't want to be too comfortable. But at the same time, we don't always want to be totally negative about the future because um, I think we've done a pretty good job of things so far i mean we've messed up we've recognized our failures in a lot of environmental directions we've made improvements and yeah we want to maybe focus on some of the good stuff as opposed to some of the negativity you guys get enough negativity we all do from uh, the news from everything that's around us from listening to greta <laughs> and all that stuff i don't feel too good after listening to that chick that's for sure so we want to paint a different uh, paint a different picture of environmentalism and say that it can be seen in a more positive light yeah yeah well said i so i think the point i want to make here is that there are different types of optimism as you alluded to so we want to talk about this term rational optimism uh, as opposed to naive optimism and i want to make that distinction because naive optimism i would say comes from a place or lacks comes from people that lack knowledge or experience or a combination of those two and naive optimism whether this is fair or not as a characteristic in people gives the impression to some that they are they're kind of foolish you know it's um and there is you can have optimism and and have rational arguments um and evidence uh, that supports the optimism which which brings you out of that naive optimist kind of um painting that someone might have of you so and it's so important because optimism is just so much better for us mentally and physically than pessimism yeah. and it just seems like you know, it varies across you know, environmentalists that you bump run into, but there is a lot of them that are pessimistic about something or other, whether it's population growth, whether it's about climate change, whether it's about the conditions of our forests, um, 
yeah it's it's never ending you is a constant tidal wave of negativity that there's the environmental crisis by 2030 everything is going to be destroyed there's the ipcc climate change uh, is going to be uh, like to the point that we can't reverse anything by the next 10 years we need to take it and this is used oftentimes i feel as a justification for these people to then take really extreme uh, measures extreme decisions because it, it's it's it, it's justified to take extreme measures and decisions when you're faced with a crisis, mm. right? For example, when you're faced with World War II, you have to take extreme measures of, okay, everything, everybody's focused on one goal, and that goal is stopping the enemies. So everything in from production, everything from industry has to be focused on that one target because you have a very specific existential threat. And it makes sense, okay, for survival. But in this case, again, we're being fed the same narrative of uh, extremism and uh, this this narrative of extreme doom and gloom of this crisis, oftentimes as justification for uh, governments or whoever to take extreme measures which might not be fully measured, uh, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. And coupled with that is a lack of understanding. And perhaps this comes about uh, because of poor education, but there's a lack of understanding or appreciation by people. Young people fall victim to this more often, I, I think, than, than others, um, to uh, just the doom and gloom of it all because they don't, they haven't been educated on the type of problems we've been put up against and how we've come and resolved them. And it's, it's, you know, history is full of mistakes, but there's also a lot of great things that we've managed to pull off and do. And I think giving both the correct time of day or the correct amount of, of discussion is appropriate, but maybe there's an imbalance currently going on with more talk about the flaws human flaws, human mistakes than is to some of the achievements. And we know this naturally happens. This is built right into our news cycle. Um, and the reason we can't look away from a car crash, perhaps. But I think that is playing in with with why some of these narratives are being swallowed, you know, unquestionably by by some people because they have they lack the appreciation to understand kind of how, how we've come to solve problems in the past and and how that may affect our future um and you know no, nothing better actually to to say on that than to jump into um a discussion around uh you know our episode planet of the humans and that got a lot of views people liked that episode of ours and that documentary that which we di- dissected had a very pessimistic conclusion i mean and it was just a very short conclusion um, in the scheme of that entire documentary, but uh, I'll, I've clipped it here. I think we should give another listen and uh, and start our discussion from there. For sure. And just to touch on that 
that episode it was the plan of the humans episode that um elliot is referring to if you haven't heard it it's a great episode that we did not to toot our own but <laughs> i encourage you to go back and take a full listen where we dissect this documentary just to fill you in real quick plan of the human if you haven't heard that uh, plan of the humans was a documentary that was released by michael moore and his uh, co longtime co-producer jeff gibbs of course they're long known to be pessimists on environmentalism and they really do paint a very crisis-like future for the for the world in terms of the environmental catastrophe the catastrophism mm. that is to take place and it's it's the movie doesn't leave you feeling too good i mean arguably a movie uh, is, is the, the job of a movie isn't uh, to make you feel good it's to make you question things however the solutions that they pose are very short-sighted and indicative of a specific mind frame and a specific way of approaching the of seeing the world and i just want to touch even backtrack a bit more is that when you were talking about how these uh, you know these things kind of repeat themselves where we keep talking about these these uh, these issues without full appreciation of how far we've come it's because people humans we, we repeat ourselves we, we go in cycles and we do this because we're short-sighted we forget things so why do we repeat the same mistakes because we forgot we forget what we've done mm. we forget the past that's why looking back into the history and how we've come across some problems how we've dealt with them is really important because we you know it's so easy to forget what happened even 50 60 years ago let alone 100 200 500 years ago so that's why it's super in my opinion crucial to learn from the past understand it take the good leave the bad and take, take make that progress because at the end of the day history repeats itself because humans forget we forget and it's 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 built in our, into our biology if we didn't forget your brain would freaking explode because <laughs> there's, there's too much information that we're constantly taking in so it's by design that we do forget so we have to i think be cognizant of that fact so let's jump into that first clip of Planet of the Humans. Let's do it. Okay. Now I know this all might seem overwhelming. It's the kind of thing that we normally don't try and think about. But by not thinking about it, it stands a good chance of doing us in. I truly believe that the path to change comes from awareness. That awareness alone can begin to create the transformation. There is a way out of this. We humans must accept that infinite growth on a finite planet is suicide. We must accept that our human presence is already far beyond sustainability and all that that implies. We must take control of our environmental movement and our future from billionaires and their permanent war on planet Earth. They are not our friends. Less must be the new more. And instead of climate change, we must at long last accept 
that it's not the carbon dioxide molecule destroying the planet. It's us. It's not one thing, but everything we humans are doing. A human-caused apocalypse. If we get ourselves under control, all things are possible. And if we don't... Yeah, I added the explosion at the end because... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> cinematic effect yeah it needed an explosion and uh, if you watch a documentary it actually goes into a very sad again and depressing imagery of a monkey uh, kind of losing its uh, well losing its environment due to deforestation whether it's completely unstaged I, I can't say but it was it was a sad way and as you heard from that clip just with the general tone of his voice and the, the violin music man that is a great way to end a documentary on earth day don't you think just really fires you up yeah no <laughs> you, you can just tell the all the cinematic effect that they put into it with the dissonant music in the background the sad violins even just listening it kind of gave me some goosebumps i was like damn I'm afraid. yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it just goes to show that you can just pretty much say anything you want put some sad dissonant music in the background have some violins playing and you'll get people coming out of it thinking yeah man that was some maybe he does have a point there right some like half-baked point it's not one thing it's everything like can you be any more broad <laughs> it's it's the billionaires like really you're just gonna paint a broad brushstroke towards billionaires and just say every single billionaire is just some sort of evil dude that's trying to destroy the planet is that what you're saying because i i think i'm pretty sure at one point you would have said the same thing about millionaires but hey then you became a millionaire yourself probably and then now you're just gonna say no it's, it's the billionaires it's just, yeah, dishonest. But anyways, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think I want to chip away at this in chunks. And the way I want to approach that is through a series of clips that I've taken from an interview that, well, not quite an interview. A podcast was Jordan B. Pearson, where he's speaking with Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley is a British bestselling author, and he's done a book that is titled coincidentally enough rational optimist the rational optimist um and he you know he he's best known for his writing writings on science uh the environment economics uh he's a well-respected journalist businessman and member of the house of lords in the united kingdom and so he sits down with uh jordan pearson on his podcast and they discuss a bunch of topics um that we won't get into today but i've clipped ones that i think fall into this realm of environmentalism, optimism, and uh, I hope by going through these clips, we can kind of lead the conversation about this in the right direction. Because, like you said, that all the theatrics and the lack of substance in that conclusion can kind of leave you in a wishy-washy spot, and, you know, we'll get into are even some of those conclusions valid obviously we don't think they are and we've elaborated on that in the past but we'll go into it a bit more in this podcast so i mean if you have nothing else you'd like to say i would say let's hit uh hit uh, uh, uh clip number two yeah i i would just like to add that 
I find it really interesting when people such as Jeff Gibbs or Michael Moore can just make these types of claims and they're just so broad scale. They just don't, it's like you said, they don't have any substance. It's like, oh, it's not the CO2 molecule, it's us. Like, what does that mean? Like, is there any solution in there, man? Doesn't that also acknowledge that we are also the things that will lead to a solution? Because he kind of alludes to it where, oh, if we get things under control, what does that, what, what does it mean to get things under control? Can you just be a bit more specific? I think that that's one of the biggest issues that I have with these types of people that have these high and mighty pious ideas of environmentalism and they speak in these broad terms. Oh, it's humans. It's it's but like, doesn't that also mean that humans are the solution by, by, by virtue of us being the problem? You said, oh, if we get things under control, then that means humans are the solution to the problem, too. And it's if you actually do look into the um what he proposes the solution it's kind of more or less have less babies like let's just stop uh, fornicating let's ha stop procreating yeah and it's it's just such a simple-minded approach that uh we will start to dissect uh, with this episode in more detail because it misses the there's so many more specifics that need to come into play when you're talking about these types of complex issues and whenever you hear somebody leave it's whenever you have an issue that you want to solve you want to be as specific about the issue as you can be because when you dissect it into its smaller components that's when you can actually have the measurable things that you can do to improve you know it's like a chemistry problem it's like a math problem if you have a complex problem what's the first thing you do you break it down into its smaller components you simplify it you get to to the individual pieces and then solve those pieces to then lead you to the final solution and i feel like a lot of people in the arts and entertainments industry they just I, it's just like a different way of thinking you know they're that right brain that's thinking in these high and mighty pious terms without really uh, thinking about things in a more concrete left brain rational manner where you have to essentially break down the problem into its smaller components and come up with solutions for it so that's just kind of like my, my two cents where you do need to break down complex problems to smaller issues in order to solve it, not just make broad statements, we are the issue, and so on and so forth. So let's jump into this second clip. Definitely. Track to eradicate extreme poverty by, according to the UN definition of extreme poverty, by 2030. And we've halved yeah. it since from the year 2000, I believe, to the year 2010. It was cut in half. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's absolutely it was, phenomenal. 60% of the world was lived in extreme poverty uh, when I was born. Uh, today, it's less than 10%. That's the greatest achievement of any human generation ever. It's Nobody's lived, lived through anything like that in the past. Yes, and that despite the fact that the population, what, tripled? Yes. Well, or, yes, or two and a half times. Um, and, uh, and nobody saw it coming. Uh, and it wasn't planned even. Most of it came about because of... Uh, you know, relatively local innovation um, to make farming more efficient and things like that. And the amount of calories available per head have gone up on every continent, including Africa. There is still extreme poverty and extreme hunger and malnutrition uh, and 
nutrient shortages and so on. Um, but what the, the thing I always say to environmentalists is, why do you think it would motivate people to tell them that this problem is insoluble? Why not say, look how well we've done in the past. Why don't we try and do just as well in the future? In the future. So the gentleman you hear there uh, speaking in the British accent is uh, Matt Ridley, and uh, he is on the other gentleman, Jordan Pearson's podcast. Now, uh, I, I chose this clip because he's talking about uh, eradicating poverty, extreme poverty. Now, there's something about this that I want to speak about. And it's the idea is you have to define first the metric which you're going to use to quantify the change that you're seeing. So they're talking about eradicating extreme poverty based on the UN definition. And I was looking around the internet trying to figure out what that is. And I think I nailed it down. So I think it's a very narrow definition. And the definition from the UN is that extreme poverty is currently measured as people living on less than a dollar 25 a day US currency. Now, I think this is okay. It's you know they in the articles I read from the UN pages they're saying that this definition may change and then there's there's definitions within individual countries that need to to be addressed accordingly and such but you know he 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 says uh Matt Ridley says you know, 60% of the world lived in extreme poverty, according to this US, US, uh, UN definition, when he was born. And he was born in 1958. And now less than 10% today is, is in extreme poverty. So over 60 years, you know, we've gone from 60 to 10. And that's, that's quite incredible. And it may not be perfect because the definition isn't perfect either. But you have to have some sort of definition to understand how you can quantify a statement like that. And then he goes on at the end of that podcast, he says, why do you think, because he's talking about to, to environmentalists, um, especially ones that are pessimistic. He says, why do you think it would motivate people to tell them that the problem is insolvable? Why not say, look how well we've done in the past. Let's try and do just as well in the future. And, you know, like I've said earlier, I just don't think people know what we've done in the past, at least not fully. I mean, I think it's like I've said, it's just we don't have the proper communication of a balanced understanding of our past. And that's kind of where I want to jump off on with this clip here. And uh and uh, the one other thing I wanted to say, kind of jumping back to Jeff Gibbs' conclusion at the end of his documentary, that I think he begins it by saying, you know, awareness alone will help us, like, lead us to a solution. But if you look at the solutions he alludes to in that documentary, which we've talked about, his solutions are, are are pretty much based around population and reducing population. And this is not necessarily a good narrative and or the reality of population growth currently on our planet, which we'll get into. 
in, in a little bit. But it, it almost seems to me, and maybe I am, I am unfairly, you know, reading into this, but maybe not because you didn't very clearly say what it was you wanted to say. But if you're saying awareness alone, it's like, oh, if you're aware of how shitty life is, and if you really get as pessimistic as I am, you will realize the future is bleak. Why would you want to bring children into this world? All right, everybody. Have a nice day. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) And, And legit. And it's like the stats go right counter to his narrative, right? Because we heard there's a, a tripling of the almost a tripling of the population since the 1950s 1960s and yet we've cut down the overall poverty of the uh, the poverty rate by from 60% to 10% so it goes to show that no no what you're saying is fundamentally incorrect it maybe maybe feels right it feels like right like his his issue my issue with him is that like his whole premise of his argument is that it, it feels like it's the right thing to say because yeah it's just you know unsustainable that's pretty much his whole thing it's unsustainable mm-hmm. but then when you look at the actual metrics you look at the actual data itself you have more people and something else that he, they allude to in that discussion is that there's actually less farmable land in terms of how much land is used for agriculture but that's because we become more efficient in a sense we become more efficient with using our land so we don't need as much land to produce the same amount of crops and this is due to innovation this is due to the human mind the human brilliance the human intellect and in fact it's due to which is something that we've talked to before uh, talked about it before as well is due to people coming out of poverty becoming more wealthy and thus having more of an interest in the environment in their surroundings so they can actually spend money time and energy to beautify the space and the nature around them whoa 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 you're getting ahead of my clips okay my, <laughs> my bad my bad <laughs> get jump jumping ahead there no no you hit no. it right on the head though that's 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 my next clip let's let's, let's hit that okay let's talk. hit it then me too because I worked, I, did, I generated, partly generated a UN report, or contributed to a UN report about six or seven years ago um, on sustainable development. And I had the same sort of realization that you described was that on all these dimensions where we were supposed to be, you know, careening towards catastrophe, we were in fact doing better and better with the possible exception, I think, of oceanic management. But we don't have to get I into agree. that. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a, the oceanic management is a catastrophe, but it's it, it could still be rectified. And it seems to be yep. a, 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 a tragedy of the commons catastrophe. Yep. And in any case, everywhere I looked at the actual statistics, the, the evidence was that things were getting better fast and like really fast fast in an unparalleled manner. But what really got me was that the evidence, as far as I can tell, is clear that as soon as you make people rich enough so that they're not living hand to mouth, then they start to become concerned with environmental degradation. And so the biggest contributor to pollution, you could make a case, a strong case, the biggest contributor to pollution isn't wealth, but poverty. And that if you raise people out of poverty, then 
they start to manage their environments properly because they can afford to look at the long run. And so you'd think that for the radical types who are hyper-concerned, according to their own self-description, with poverty and oppression, as well as environmental degradation, that they would look at the facts and say, oh my God, we can have our cake and eat it too. The faster we make people rich, the better off the planet is going to be. Yeah, yeah. The, and I just want to repeat that. So the biggest contribution to pollution isn't wealth, it's poverty. And if you raise people out of poverty, they'll start to manage their environment properly. I honestly, I you know, when you start thinking it along those terms, it becomes a lot clearer about why we're seeing the the changes that we're seeing to the environment in the in the benefit on the beneficial side compared to in the past, and it's and it has to, I think, without a doubt, do with with getting people wealthy. Now there's and there's some you know there's, you still have to maintain within. Uh, society and understanding why maintaining a healthy environment is a good thing for for people like that still has to be a value held within society because you could have if that just goes by the wayside and then it's just you will you could have wealthy societies with declining environmental uh dying environment on by different metrics but um you know i think the the key there is that people start to care about things like the environment when they're not in poverty when they're not worried about what their next food is about paying a bill about just the general well-being having a roof over their head having making sure their children are going to school that type of thing um and so how, how do you do that now there's something i wanted to talk about right here uh which is this concept of you know making people wealthy and one idea that's been floating around uh is that the government gives people money uh ubi universal basic income and uh i don't like this idea i think it has flaws uh one being that there's an increased reliance of people on government uh and all that comes with that um but i acknowledge that i'm not an economist and i don't quite have a, a good solution but i would say that the goal should be I think another approach which doesn't involve governments just giving people money, but rather an approach that prevents, <coughs> excuse me, an approach that prevents, you know, the cost of products of um, the electrical bill, food, the cost of housings from increasing at a rate disproportionate to the rate of people, people's wealth. As the, the gist of the idea would be, you want to make the money that people are already making go farther or at least go to the right amount that gives them a, a wellness to their life uh well-being to their life so uh, but like i said I, I i hesitate to try to direct too much in this conversation in this realm because i'm not an economist uh, but i am interested in hearing from economists about ideas that you know kind of aim to do exactly that without UBI without necessary government subsidies. That's that's all I wanted to say about that. Yeah, I think with UBI, it's it, that's a whole other can of worms that mm. we could spend like another two hours talking about the pros and cons. But I want to uh, take it back to the the whole premise of uh, how poverty. When you're in poverty, you 
essentially are not too concerned about the the environment you're not too concerned about pollution and i'll give you an example of this uh, from my own personal experience when i was traveling through nepal throughout Kathmandu, over there when you're in the city there's lots extreme amounts of pollution uh, people were wearing face mask there before it was cool to wear face masks put it that way <laughs> and that is because of the air quality because it's absolutely trash and the reason that it's trash is because they're using old dirty engines uh two-step engines with uh, n- no uh catalytic converters at their end with uh, the the exhaust of the exhaust so exhaust is just smells like crap it's a horrible combustion incomplete combustion everywhere you go smells like shit but you know what people don't care because they're just trying to get from point a to point b so they can do their job they're just trying to survive and they'll they'll take the bare minimum of having a mask over their face and that's good enough you want to talk about a, a fancy car or a fancy motorcycle that has those catalytic converters that are going to be able to absorb all those exhaust gases? Forget about it, man. They're too poor. They can't afford that shit. And what the government's going to tell them? No, you got to get this uh, more expensive car, this more expensive motorcycle that maybe 1% of your population can afford? No, man. You can't do that. You can't do that until your country, your people are wealthy enough to afford that thing. And those people, unfortunately, have to spend their lives from the time they're born breathing in this horrible air. And it's it's just the way of life there because they simply don't have the means to afford getting higher quality engines that uh, uh, that are built to a, a higher degree of standard that have more more concern given to the the quality of the combustion to reduce all the exhaust gases and all that stuff so again just from my own experience like i've seen this i've seen what happens here people are just throwing out trash because they, they, they don't care where it goes they're just trying to just they're just trying to get by in life they're just trying to figure things out they're just they're, and again it comes down to this whole premise that is really interesting that is alluded to in this conversation as well with uh, jordan b peterson and uh, matt ridley is that once you have that wealth you're able to project yourself into the future you're able to think of your future self and your future generations and how they are going to be impacted by the decisions that you make right now if you don't have that wealth you're not thinking about 10 years 20 years 30 years down the line you're thinking about tomorrow you're thinking about today let alone next week or next month you're just trying to get by like today like that's it yeah yeah i mean in you know, and and to make matters worse, <clears throat> uh, there were people, and there probably are still people, that think along a line that is you need to the people that are still in poverty or stuck in poverty. There's no reason to help them because if we help them, it's just going to make things worse. Okay, and and this is you might say that's a callous kind of thing way of thinking. Well, this is this is actually the thinking of someone like Thomas Malthus. Uh, Malthus. I don't know how to pronounce his name quite quite right, but he was um, he was a uh, you know a, an economist and demographer uh, demographer, and he was born in England, seventeen sixty six. Died in eighteen thirty four, 
and uh, he has a theory, and it's called uh, the Malthus theory, uh, the population growth. Um, and it's basically the theory that says populations will always tend to outrun the food supply. And the betterment of humankind is impossible without stern limits on reproduction. Uh, that, so this next clip we're going to get into kind of goes down that route. But I want to also point out that back in that Jeff Gibbs conclusion in his documentary, he talks about the concept of, you know, infinite growth on a finite planet. You know, we can't, we can't, you know, uh, we can't have, we can't do that. We can't have that mindset. And I agree. It, it doesn't logically make sense. Anything, whether it's infinite economic growth, infinite growth of population, you know, everybody can imagine, you know, you're going to ruin your environment at some point. And this is point, you know, so clearly examples of these exist, but you put, you know, a few chickens on a plot of land in a cage, they peck away at the grass and that's fine. The grass can continue to regrow. You put enough, uh, regrow at, you know, a rate that is, uh, that will allow new grass to grow before they eat it. You put too much on, uh, too many chickens on a, on a, on an area of grass within a few days, the grass is gone. It's down to bare earth. There's no chance that that plant's ever going to come back. The, the environment can no longer feed the the chickens if nobody else is giving them food chickens begin to die and that's the problem with too many demands on a or on, on a on a on a resource and and that is the problem that runs in the thinking around infinite growth on a finite planet but are we actually growing are we going to fulfill that whole projection of infinite growth on a finite planet and a lot of the evidence is saying we're not going to do that and that's what I want to get into, but I want to talk. That's what I'm bringing in uh, Thomas Malthus because his theory and thoughts have not only, you know, cemented this idea in schooling and education, but it also has made that very crude, callous opinion about, oh, we should just give up on people that live in poor people, they live in poor areas and are, you know, it's a useless cause. Yeah, uh, we don't want to make them rich because if we make them rich, then they're going to just consume more and then that's going to put us even in a deeper hole and then this cycle continues. It's a it's a really disgusting mind frame when you think about it because it just means, okay, just leave, leave the people as they are. Let them just continue their in their lives of poverty, degradation, and it's, it's better to leave them like that than actually help them because if we help them, then that means that they're going to start consuming more. It's it's pretty gross it's when you backwards. think about it. It's just backwards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to hit that next clip? All right. Next clip coming up. It's called the Malthusian Trap. Well, the Malthusian Trap was Robert Malthus's notion was that if you uh, kept people alive, they would simply, uh, you know, if you, if you gave them more food, then they would simply have more babies. So they would end up just as poor and just as hungry. Yeah, well, something like that happened in Ireland when, when, when potatoes Absolutely. became the dominant crop and then failed, yeah. right? So the Irish pop, you, you outline this in your book. It's not an idea exactly. that originates with me. When the Irish started to farm potatoes, their population exploded. And then a blight yeah. came in and wiped out the potato crop and, and blew out the Irish population. And that's yeah. a classic Malthusian example. Yeah. And he's sort yeah, of Malthus the ultimate pessimistic biologists. Yeah, and he wasn't entirely wrong in that respect. But the thing he did get wrong is that technology might change it. And we then moved to a world in which 
um, food became more and more productive. Babies stopped dying. We got better at keeping them alive. And weirdly, once they stopped dying, people started having fewer of them. And this is a, a phenomenon called the demographic transition that, that took us really by surprise. You know, if, if you stop ra baby rabbits dying, they have more babies. But if you stop baby human beings dying, people say, right, I'm not going to try and have as many kids as possible in the hope that a few survive. I'm going to have two. Right. So you heard Matt Ridley's a demographic transition theory. I had no idea what this was, so I looked it up. Okay. This is a theory um, that describes the changing pattern of mortality, fertility, and growth rates uh, as, a, as societies move from one demographic region to another. The term was first coined by the American dem demographer Frank W. Notstein, maybe Notstein, not too sure, in the mid 20th century, but has since been elaborated and expanded upon by many others. Now, there's four stages to this classical demographic transition model. So, uh, stage one is called pre transition. So, it's characterized by high birth rates, high fluctuating death rates, populations growth growth was kept low by Malthusian uh, prevent preventives, uh, which it says in bracket, it's like late age of marriage and, and positive uh, uh, forces, which they describe as famine, war, uh, pestilence, okay? And then it moves on to stage two, which is called early transition. During the, uh, during the early stage of the transition, the death rate begins to fall. So the death rate begins to fall. As birth rates remain high, the population starts to grow rapidly, moving into the third stage called late transition. Birth rates start to decline and the rate of population growth uh, deaccelerates. De and then you move into stage four called post-transition. Post-transitional societies are characterized by low birth and low death rates. Population growth is negligible or even enters a decline. So if you picture this on a graph which they show in in with this model of the stages population growth kind of looks like this you have it starting to at a certain level and then it starts to head up 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 and this is you know characterized by uh, excessive population growth and then it starts to starts the 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 growth rate starts to decline 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 and you kind of have it start to taper off to a level a, a level uh um, at a, sorry, at a it kind of levels off at a certain degree, and then it begins maybe to fall slightly, or it kind of just kind of plateaus. And you go, hey, is that even reasonable? And um, before I get into that, uh, because it is in fact reasonable, and we're seeing it occur in countries today, um, I just wanted to see if there was any thoughts you had after hearing that clip. Yeah, I think when um, when you think about this whole Malthusian trap, it's uh, it, again it, it's short sighted in the sense that yes, as people um, have more babies and there's more consumption. However, again, I think as these gentlemen outlined pretty well, is that when you actually have an increase in wealth and and education which this gentleman Matthews, whatever his name is, didn't consider is that 
you in fact have a decrease in the birth rate you in fact have which is a big issue in countries of the west where we don't actually reproduce at the same rate as we used to just because of higher levels of education people are in school for longer longer periods of time they're getting married at later dates or at later ages and they just want to have less kids we're not rabbits fundamentally we're not and that's like that's the issue with these biologists thinking that humans are exactly like other animals we are and we're not we're our own thing and we're a complex psychological biological being and when we have more wealth especially with women getting more educated then we in fact have less reproduction which again goes to show that more wealth is a benefit to the environment because now we're in fact having less children uh well i mean whether or not that's positive or negative is another story but again it goes to show that the the the, the theory is wrong with with increasing wealth we we do need to help people become more wealthy because as they improve their wealth as they get out of poverty they will start to have less children and again become have more con- they'll start to have more concern for their environment for their surroundings and another thing that this guy didn't consider is that it's assuming that technology stays stagnant which it inevitably does not technology changes and necessity is the mother of all innovation meaning that when we are faced with problems we are generally able to come up with solutions and hey you know what that old old expression two heads are better than one two brains thinking about an issue are better than one so when you think about it if if we have more people that are more wealthy that are then more concerned about the environment you actually have more brain power dedicated towards solving these environmental issues so which again goes uh, completely counter to this whole narrative that not only to keep people in their poverty because if they get too rich then they're just going to consume more and that's going to consume more uh, more of our resources no absolutely not because we have more brain power that's more wealthy thus more dedicated towards solving environmental issues thus we have more fundamentally computational power if you think about having supercomputers working towards solving an issue well that's what we have we have a bunch more supercomputers uh, as in the human mind the human intellect that's focused towards solving these environmental issues so uh, again it goes straight counter to our friend Jeff Gibbs who would say oh no we need to stop reproduction we need to have less babies we need to maybe that's true maybe that's true to a certain degree but we need to have wealth distributed more to the to lower class to get them rich to get them to start thinking about these issues more people equals more brain power dedicated towards solving these problems yeah that is such a good point and i think much better way of looking at the problem and to speak to some of the reasons why we're seeing birth rates decline, um, let's hit this next clip and uh, and finish this off. Rate of reproduction has plummeted and increasingly across the world. It looks like as soon as you educate women, open up the marketplace to them and provide a modicum of birth control, as well as these other 
improvements in yep. living standard that you described that the birth rate yep. plummets to below re to below uh, replacement. Yeah, no, and an awful lot of countries are, are going to have problems with below replacement fertility in the, in this coming century, uh, which means that you've got a, a very aging workforce uh, which won't be able to afford retirement because there's not enough working people and so on. You know, so that's another problem you've got, but it's it's better than. Uh, a population explosion continuing to the point where there's 20 billion people trying to live on a planet, uh, which is what we were worried about 40 years I ago. I think the projections now are that we're going to peak out at about 11 billion, something like that. That's the UN median projection, but a lot of people think it's overblown, actually, that, that the numbers, uh, if you run the numbers with sensible, uh, you know, it, it a lot depends on how fast the Nigerian birth rate comes down, as you said earlier. Uh, right. But with a, a sensible assumption, we might not even get much past 10 billion. Well, it'd and be really quite it, remarkable if, if an emergent problem for the latter half of the 20th century was that there, there was too many goods and not enough people. <laughs> and that, that could easily be the case. That could easily be the case, especially not enough young people. Um, so maybe the answer to Malthus is, is sort of hidden in some sense um, inside the presumptions you made in your book. So maybe we could pause it as a general biological rule is if the rate of sexual reproduction of ideas exceeds the rate of sexual reproduction of human beings, then there's no Malthusian catastrophe. That's a very nice way of putting it. I think that well, is exact, it's exactly the point I like to make. Yeah, so I just wanted to repeat what uh, Jordan Peterson said there at the end, and he says, if the rate of sexual reproduction, sorry, if the rate of, of the sexual reproduction of ideas exceeds the rate of sexual reproduction of human beings, then there is no Methuselian catastrophe. And that's a very broad statement, but it, I think it does do quite a good job of summing up what is is in fact happening here and it's quite astounding when we look at uh, population estimates you know we're currently at 7.7 .7 billion people on this planet roughly around that's the uh, the current number so 7.7 .7 billion we're approaching 8 billion the un estimate peaks at 11 billion now i know you've heard us talk about predicting and projections and all stuff like that but you know holding that into that that is my actually be the case based on the current data and you know uh, matt really says he thinks it's even a little high um you know 11 billion could actually be 10 billion depending on who's running the numbers it's a very different picture than the picture that this is just going to keep going up and we're going to have 20 billion people on this planet uh in, in the next hundred years and and it'll be something to watch. I, I'm, I'll be curious to watch these projections and see what happens over 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 my lifetime. Um, but one thing that caught my attention was uh, he says um, a lot depends on how much the Nigerian birth rate comes down. And I thought to myself, why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like what's going on in Nigeria? So I was looking at current um, birth rates uh, around the world, rated uh, ranked by. Uh, by country and Nigeria is definitely up there so it's not at the top but they have a large population and I think this is what he he might be speaking to although I'm not 100% sure but in Nigeria uh, if you rank all the countries in the world on a list Nigeria starts to appear near the top in terms of growth rates so from 2010 to 2019 they've uh, grown 26% and their yearly average yearly growth is around 2.6 2.7 percent 
and when you actually look at a so is that in terms of population growth or gdp as that's population growth gotcha and when you look at an actual graph over time from the uh, early 1960s up to the current date it is showing an upwards projection no indications that there's it, it's plateauing um in the country uh which uh but it's not at the top of the list in terms of a highest growth rate uh of of the people uh omen uh is actually up there and omen is a country in southeastern uh, off the southeastern coast of um the arabian peninsula and uh it has a growth rate uh between uh 2010 and 2019 of 63 percent with an average yearly growth rate of 5.6 percent however the difference between it and nigeria is nigeria we're talking about going from 50 million inhabitants to 200 million inhabitants over over the last 40 50 years with in omen uh, you were talking about going from 0.5 million uh to mm, somewhere around uh 5 million so from 0.5 to 5 million over that same uh 50 to uh, 50 years period so it's it, it's it's the number the increase is there but the actual number of people that are, are the grow, growing out of the country because it's smaller and there's less people there is different so that's some of the, the the nuance that needs to be considered when you're looking at rates and how they have a, a significant effect on the overall population of the planet. Right, um, it's a it's a bigger relative number, but smaller absolute number. Yes, exactly. Um, I wanted to look at Canada because you know, bring it home. Yeah, uh, what's going on here? And, and Canada is not really showing that uh, that that plateau yet either. Uh, Canada over the last. 60 years, so from 1960 uh, to 2019, uh, it, we started at 17.5 million uh, people, and we've reached around 35 million, and with no real indication from the data that we are plateauing. We see a different picture when we start to look at United Kingdom and the United States, which are ranked right above one or right beside each other. The United Kingdom has got a slightly higher growth rate than the U.S. Um, but the, in the U.S., we see the growth starting to plateau in that country. Um, I just want to add, though, for Canada, a lot of the growth, though, too, is due to immigration. It's not simply the birth rate necessarily, but we do have immigration fundamentally replacing uh, the, the, the deaths or the mortality. Because I think if you look at our numbers in terms of the birth rate, like or the average babies that in a family has, it is one of those countries where it's slowly starting to fall below that replacement threshold. So by right. virtue of us not having as many babies, then we need to have an input of immigrants in order to uh, sustain that population growth. And that's a very good point. And another one of those, um, one of those problems with simply looking at rates and as they relate to the ranking of countries, you you lose in the picture what the effects of uh, immigration are 
in in the way population is cha- changing at that level. Uh, want wanted to say China, uh, you know, so below Canada is kind of mid. If you ranked all the countries, it's kind of mm, in the 60 percent high range in terms of ranking you move to the middle tier like where you know the 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 median where half the data is above and half the data below and you start to fall into united states and united kingdom Uh, and then you go uh, below even the u.s and we look at the china situation now china has a lot more people there uh, but they are um, showing a decline they only have their average uh, yearly growth increase is around 0.5 percent okay and just to remind you united states is around 0.7 and canada is around one one percent and we're also seeing well from this graph i'm seeing of china's population we're seeing again that curve where it goes it's going up and then it's starting to plateau slowly and it looks like it's approaching some sort of um uh either peak and then it might decline who knows but we do know that this is happening very clearly in Japan, which has a negative 0.14% uh, growth rate, average growth rate per year. And if you look at their population graph, it is not just plateaued, but it's declining, hence the negative average. And that is also happening in Greece uh, as well. Uh, and then who is at the lowest, you might ask? Well. That would be uh, Moldova, if I'm pronouncing that, the Republic of Moldova. It's a landlocked country in Eastern Europe, uh, bordered by Romania to the west and Ukraine to the northeast, to the northeast and south. And it has had a a drastic drop. Uh, Their average is negative 2.71%. That's their average uh, growth rate, which would be... decrease not growth but uh you know as as we've pointed out earlier there's this is not just simply due to the lack of birth this could be to immigration or leaving of countries and such things as changing. i, I want you to tie too. back in though to, 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 to tie, tie this whole thing back into me to the whole conversation of environmentalism to tie, tie in these numbers for me please sure so the reason I've gone down this entire rabbit hole is we began with the idea of infinite growth on a finite planet. Mm-hmm. We had the the Malthusian theory that this is going to be a big problem. We're, mm-hmm. we're going to have, we're just going to keep on reproducing like rabbits and we're going to burn out our resources. Then comes along another theory, another theory, which I'm, stalling because i forgotten it the demographic mm, demographic transition theory and this transition series says hang on a second we're not seeing this infinite growth what's going on we're going to define the three stage or uh, the four stages which has to do with you know as 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 we stop losing people as people start to you know we live in a time where people die frequently we are, and and are born frequently as people start to buy die less we seem to not be having as many babies and we're seeing in some countries you know a plateau of 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 growth and i wanted just to point out that this is is the, is the reality we're modeled against now it's not happening everywhere and that's why i've broken down different countries but it is understanding what are driving some of those changes in population growth 
um, whether it's education, birth control, uh, getting married at a later age, changes in, in ideology, changes uh, in technology. Um, it is, you know, conceptualized very succinctly in, in that, you know, uh, in that conclusion by Jordan Pearson there that, you know, maybe as long as we continue to um, you reproduce ideas, like the internet, the connected of our world, the ideology about what it is to have, um, to, to have, what it is to be alive, to be have a fulfilling life. If these things keep changing faster than we actually reproduce, maybe this is you know going to prevent this. Maybe this is a reason why we're uh, the Malthusian catastrophe hasn't yet to come come to pass. And that's that's how I'm trying to tie everything I'm presenting here in together. If that makes sense. Gotcha, gotcha. So essentially, we're saying that. With, um, I mean, China might be a great example. Where, well, no, they're not a great example because they kind of stunted their growth due to just policy and other artificial means. Mm -hmm. But it is to say that as the population does become more wealthy, as they, as people do become more educated, that you do have this tapering off, this equilibrium, for lack of a better term, that is reached where people are just no longer interested in having 10 kids or whatever because you know what you don't need to have 10 kids because you're not worried about five of them dying off uh, before the age of two years old it's more than likely that they're all going to survive and that's just going to be more of a headache for you so yeah, no disrespect <laughs> kids are great but uh, it's, it's to say that we what happens is that there's a changing of the psychology and essentially it's to say that as people get wealthy they don't think the same way as they become more educated they don't think the same way so we can't assume that people will behave the same way that they do when they're in a certain stage of their life after they get to a different point in their life right we we adapt we evolve that's one of the uh, humans are uh, ingenious in the sense that we are we are entrepreneurial by by our nature we are always looking around trying to solve problems trying to make tools so as we grow and develop we can't expect the same behaviors to take place to a certain degree yes there's certain fundamental human um, psychological traits that are going to be universal you're always going to have love you're always going to have those basic uh, things taking place but it is to say that once people reach a certain level of affluence then they they start to behave differently they start to think about different things they maybe aren't so concerned about having so many kids they'll have kids at a later date and it's just to uh, and again counter to the narrative that the only solution is stop having kids the only solution is don't have more babies because that seems to be one of the biggest things that uh, comes out of movies such as um produced by jeff gibbs of um what was the name of the movie again the planet of the planet humans jeez <laughs> I'm uh, just trying to forget it. <laughs> just want to forget it. <laughs> the, uh, of movies like Planet of the Humans that are just all doom and gloom. Yeah, we need less people. We because we're just like a poison. People are are, are garbage. People are horrible. Well, it, it it neglects this whole phenomenon that people change. People don't behave the same way once people grow. Once people develop themselves. Once people once people become wealthy, they don't behave the same way. Mister Gibbs, uh, did you take that into consideration? Probably not, uh, but that's okay. That's why we're here. That's why you listen to us. <laughs> that's it. And you know what? I also want to point out because you brought up, you know, the regulations around 
having children that were in China. And I think that is an important part to consider in all this. So there's almost something, no, there's something tyrannical. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's that control by government to say you can or cannot do this in your life. And I think what is more incredible about what we're seeing is that we don't need that type of force. We don't need to tell somebody who wants to have six kids, seven kids, eight kids, you can't have those kids. You don't have government telling you you can't have those kids. They can still have those kids. There's some people that that's going to be a huge part of their life for them and bring them joy and stuff like that. But we're living in a world where we don't have to have government say that because there's other forces and other things at play here that um, is regulating uh, uh, this from com- going out of coming out of control, and perhaps that's you know, you know something very good about this is because it, it seems to me that it, it's on you know if it got to a point where we would have to ha- have governments that strictly regulate how many kids you have, and uh, I, I just don't like it. that. Doesn't sound good to me. That I don't like the sound of that. It's yeah. it's not a society I would want to live in. I don't think many people will want to live in that type of place where the government can essentially have control over your most fundamental desires as a human being as your most fundamental um it, it, it like fun it's what procreation is what pushes life you know pro- procreation Into the future it's, it's, it's the most natural thing that we can do arguably in a biological sense it's what we were put on this planet to do and then for to have the, um people like jeff gibbs uh, or try to put it out there that hey you know what maybe this is the the solution we have to get things under control and i'm sure he would be he would look at places like china and say wow they did a great job i'm sure if we talk to jeff gibbs in private he would be a huge advocate for having a one child policy or two child child policy whatever similar type of thing to uh, places like china because people like this uh want to take control they think that they have some sort of knowledge and their knowledge and ideology is the absolute truth without considering how different factors, different variables come into play once, again, people reach different stages of their lives, how they are countering narratives that do take place that when you do become wealthy, you maybe don't want to have as many kids, so you don't need the government shoving down these regulations down your throat because naturally people don't have the inclination to have as many kids. And it's it's just kind of uh, sickening that people like uh, that are wealthy, Jeff gives his position that they'll essentially make these types of claims like oh and they'll stand on their moral high ground like yeah you, you shouldn't have kids it's how you like i hear this narrative a lot like oh i don't want to bring kids into this type of world well like if you think that way then good like don't <laughs> you, you, you probably are somebody that shouldn't be bringing kids into this world because if you have that mind frame then you've subscribed to these simplistic ideologies that really miss the big picture they really miss these other things these other push and pull factors that are at play and that 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 shape what a human is and human behavior and they try to take control into their hand i have the answer well you know what no one person has the answer there's many different variables that you need to consider and for one person to have all those variables in their brain 
it would just simply be impossible and it's it's just uh it's just silly it's a silly game to play yeah I, and i agree i agree those people if they have that outlook sh- they shouldn't have kids and i think it's because one reason one way of looking at it is you're probably going to instill into that kid a lot of ideas that are going to lead to a lot of suffering in the mentally uh um based on your your already current understanding and where you've plateaued in in, in relation to this topic so yeah so you're you going to add your anxiety onto your kids and they and you're going to have kids growing up with all your bullshit which already happens anyways but you're just going to add just going to compound yeah there's <laughs> nobody wants the hair that they are not wanted by their parents or were not expected by their parents and this is like another layer to it uh if you if you have this opinion so i know i had you as a kid but i i don't i don't you shouldn't do it you shouldn't do it and you shouldn't continue down the same road like what yes yeah backwards and you know what i would also push back against i know you said you know maybe if we had him in a room i'd bet he, or like i would 100 percent say think he would be pro the uh the the policies of the china and you go well we don't have jeff gibbs here to ask him this question but what i would like to and so we don't fully understand what he would think on this topic but i would like to point out that it's in his discussions in his dialogue that he presented in that movie there's nothing that says he would think otherwise and that yeah. is you know a point when you think about the ideas you're putting for you need to think about what people the criticism criticism of and sometimes not talking about a criticism um is is going to be uh, uh, uh you know uh, conceived as as a support of that now it's very hard to do and this is a very hard thing to do people suffer from this when they're writing books even some of the best books written are ones that consider um you know what the criticism of the reader is going to be and kind of address it in the next paragraph or the next chapter or something like that because um you know with a book you got this one-way conversation and you're not really there with the person to to kind of manage their concerns as they're going through your ideas but it, it just you know based off what we presented in that in that documentary there's just no reason to think he wouldn't be that and, and that's definitely a feeling that I think we both were, were were left with after it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, this next clip kind of takes us away from the whole population thing, but I had to chop it up because as much as I like both of these guys and I respect them, you know, there's something that Matt says at the end of this clip that I just shook my head and was like, oh, Matt, Matt, come on, <laughs> do better. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's take a listen to that. And, you know, there's lots of things that we're not doing that we could do that you also touch on. Um, one of the things that that strikes me as somewhat catastrophic is the tragic underdevelopment of nuclear power. I, I've spoken with a number of people about the possibilities of nuclear power. And you point out in your I think it's in how innovation works, actually, that there are no shortage of plans for much smaller nuclear reactors that don't use water as the primary coolant that use salt or some other substance like that certain salts and that if they uh fail they actually shut down rather than melting down and so that's another example i think of where the the environmentalists 
much a broad brush, but the environmentalists got things seriously wrong and are still doing so because as far as I can tell, if you wanted, the question is, what do you want? Like if you want cheap power of the sort that would make people rich enough to start caring about the environment, it seems to me that you would be a nuclear power supporter rather than a supporter of solar or wind power, which I think only still accounts for about 3% of total energy needs. That's true. Um, uh, people say, oh, no, no, that's wrong. It's more than 10%. You find they're referring to electricity, but electricity is only about 25% of energy at the moment. So it's, it's around 3% comes from solar and wind. But the, the real problem with solar and wind versus nuclear, nuclear is still horribly expensive because of the way we've regulated it and driven up its price. So the, the, our problem is how to get the price down. But the real problem is the amount of land that solar and wind use because they're very low density sources of energy. So you have to have a lot of land and you need more land than there is. You know, I mean, even Canada has hardly got enough land to produce renewable energy for its population. Ha! Even Canada doesn't have enough land. It's going to have more, more, you need more land than it's currently available. I don't know, Matt, I think you live in you, the UK, England is pretty small. And you forget how big other countries are. Like, Canada's yeah. got a lot of land, man. Yeah. Um, bigger than Europe, dude. <laughs> I just, I heard that and I was like, oh, no. You know, and I maybe, maybe he's looking at a study for the UK because UK, like, again, it's hard to say, but they have a lot of population on a small bit of land and they got to do a lot with that land in terms of farming and stuff like that. But we, when we looked at Canada, and, and and even the U.S. and about you know in the theoretical um, proposition that we put forward that we don't even necessarily promote, but this idea of like a hundred percent solar or hundred percent wind, when we looked at energy productions made from those uh, those systems, then you can totally do it, and it's not going to take up too much. You know, it's not going to take up too much of your agricultural land in these countries. Um, so that's just that's just false. Uh, yeah, and uh, essentially what Elliot's referring to is a, a previous podcast episode where we looked at the land requirements for solar and wind power, and we did some theoretical calculations based on, okay, if we were to meet the total electrical need, the, the electrical power demands of Canada and U.S., how much land would that actually require if that was to be done via a totally solar power or versus totally wind power system? and it's surprisingly it is much less than you would think and in fact uh, I think we came to that it was roughly the size of Ottawa the city of Ottawa the capital of Ottawa not too big of a city by any stretch of the imagination would be the land that you would need in order to uh, cover in order to provide the full power demand of uh, Canada at large and Canada is one of the biggest energy consumers uh, in the world, so uh, per capita, uh, that is, and it, it really does goes to show that you know the, the the conversation is a bit more complex again. That we uh, again, this was a, a very simplistic model that we did, um, but nonetheless, we do have to consider that we can actually provide a lot of power with um, electrical for electricity via solar, via wind. 
However, again, it's just where are our locations, the, where is the accessibility, and of course, we need to supplement it with tertiary energy storage, and that's a whole other discussion, which we did another podcast episode on, but yeah, I think maybe Matt is maybe um, not so well informed when it comes to that specific discussion. And, and that's just it. You know, when you are discussing so many of these topics, which are disciplines of themselves it is you're bound to make a mistake somewhere and but you know i'd like to say that even if our model and it is very simplistic if it's off by an order of magnitude let's say it's not the city of ottawa let's say it's 10 times there let's say it's it's two orders of magnitude let's say it's 100 times we still don't even approach the issue of running out of land so yeah, that's what i mean, you know even with a simple model we it's not like things will fall off as soon as we add a few more things in mm-hmm. um let's uh listen to the rest of his argument about against wind because i had a few more things i wanted to say about his thoughts on this next clip frankly that's going back to a medieval economy where you had to use the landscape to produce energy you had to dam the rivers and um uh grow the crops that you then uh, and, and cut down the forests, you know, to to burn. Well, for wood it's not so. obvious either that wind farms aren't a blight on the landscape. I'm afraid they are. They're terrible for birds. I'm a keen bird watcher. I don't like the idea of these these birds being devastated by onshore and offshore wind. Uh, and you know, it, it, a wind farm spends the first seven, eight years of its life earning back the energy that went into building the wind turbine. You know, uh, and only after that is it net positive. Um, uh, and uh, even then, it's a huge investment of capital that could be doing something. Could be doing something else. So uh, I just, okay, let me break apart his argument here into sections. So he begins by talking about it's a medieval concept using the landscape to like generate uh, power and electricity. I don't get that at all. Like just because it is a, an, a, we use the landscape in medieval times to help generate power. I don't think that's a negative or that we should just do away with it because it's old. If it if it works and it lasts and sustainable, then it should remain. It, the medieval part didn't even make sense to me. Now he then talks about birds being hurt, uh, or you know by winter. But I think this is true. I don't know the full extent of it, and it's not great. Okay, you know maybe that's why you want to have solar over over wind. Um, but you know you have to put that quantify that damage to the benefits of it okay the other thing is he goes on to say wind farms spend its first seven to eight years earning back the energy that went into making the wind turbines and that cost you know uh, you know and that cost money to and it cost money to build them yeah everything does all infrastructure does <laughs> all infrastructure you build is going to take a certain amount of time to earn back what it ta- yeah. costs to build it that's just payback uh, period <laughs> yeah and I mean it's huge on nuclear reactors it's yeah. billions of dollars it takes years uh, some analysis of like the older system and not these smaller systems which jordan pearson was talking about that are promising for the future but some of the older classical like large-scale nuclear reactors, they take tens 10 years before you know they actually even start to turn a profit um, yeah, so, so it's kind of like a moot point. It's kind of a moot point because it can be applied to all technologies that generate electricity or all infrastructure for that matter. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of uh, maybe shows his leanings and where he has a maybe like a bias because if yeah, if you're making a statement like that, you're neglecting the fact that every single technological investment has 
uh, yeah, an initial capital cost. So he's like, oh, well, that's capital that could be used for something else. Well, that's literally what you do when you invest in something. You put down capital that you could have put somewhere else on your project, and then you have to wait a certain number of years in order to regain that investment. It's 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 like it's just how economics works, bud. That's, <laughs> that's just how it is. You make an investment. It's a capital cost, and then you have yearly returns in order to cover that initial cost so yeah i, I kind of found that kind of a, a silly point because it's essentially a consistent thing that you have to do with everything single investment if you want to have a truly honest conversation you have a, a comparison okay um you know this is the payback period for wind turbines this is the payback period for nuclear this is the payback period for a gas turbine this is the payback period for a coal turbine and then you can have a, a bit more of a all-encompassing view dialogue of how the, the the investment that you put into your wind farm or your solar farm compares in relation to some of the other uh, solutions that you're proposing. But uh, just to say it out like that, it, it just kind of, um, I, I felt like it was a, a bit of an unfair statement. Yeah, I think you nailed it when he says part of it, it just kind of one of his biases and, and it uh, it just uh, seemed weak. It, his argument seemed weak in, in that regard. I don't think... He'd fully thought through that that topic uh, well, um, and I just want to say something about infrastructure and investing in it. You know, the incredible reliability of society, uh, of our power, lights come on, lights go off. When we have storms, they don't, you know, uh, we have storms, sometimes there's outages, but most times there's not outages. If there are outages, you know, the power is fixed. When you turn on the water, the water comes on, the water is clean, the water is drinkable. All these things took investment. People invested time into them. And to have these things stay reliable for time into the future, we're going to have to continue to invest in them. There's this thing called uh, something, or this you know, saying, you know, out of sight, out of mind, which is happening to a lot of infrastructure that is buried, that needs to be re repaired, whether it's sewer systems or water systems, that have gone neglected, and and you know, you don't see them, you don't think about them until the day they break on you, and and so, you know, my point here is just that when we talk about cost and spending lots of money, billions of dollars of money, at a certain time, it's like, yeah that's part of what we have to do because it's going to allow us to live in these very reliable states and, and society for time ahead of it. And it's one of the best investments we can make because like these are the fundamental things that prop us up that, you know, that improve our health, improve our quality of life. Um, so there's no reason, you know, that, that spending a lot of the money in 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 on infrastructure projects, you know, is a waste. But it, I can see it being a waste when you have multiple options of infrastructures and there's decisions are made about where to allocate the money. There is there is some decisions that have to be made there. But in general, I just wanted to point that out that like infrastructure is so key to the, our very uh, you know reliable um, you know state of society of cities of life that they are so important to to continue to to maintain and and invest in and i just want to touch on this whole like 
oh, it's a whole medieval concept. Like, this whole, uh, I don't agree with it. It's a medieval concept. Uh, buddy, aren't you in the House of Lords? Isn't that a freaking medieval concept? <laughs> yeah, we're talking about medieval concept. <laughs> Bro, you're in the House of Lords. That's a pretty damn freaking medieval concept. Coming like, from a country that has a monarchy, right? You know? Yeah, coming from a dude that still bows down to the queen. Like, get the... Get out of here, man. Yeah. Oh, 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 what about the? I don't know. What about uh, the Bible? Oh, that, that's a that's a medieval con- or that's a pre-medieval concept. Does that mean okay, we should give that up too, just because it's pre-medieval? Like I don't know. Just by virtue of something being quote unquote medieval, doesn't mean that it's a good or a bad. It, I think that's just again like a very short-sighted view of things, and it's like how do you think? natural gas works how do you think coal power plants work how do you think those things emerged it's from taking resources from the environment again so again we're we're taking resources making use of the environment whatever the the fossil fuels are and digging it out so yeah again it's the same thing as your whole um wind power or solar power argument like it just it's kind of again short-sighted on on his part i think a hundred percent hundred percent now i don't got too much more to say for this podcast um and i want to wrap it up on this note you know we've been talking about the, the overarching theme of this is is optimism and not just any type of optimism we're talking about rational optimism and, and there is a place for it and it's warranted and it is it is always better than pessimism it just is before you mentally physically for the, for being around people that are optimistic um so you know i think people if they're craving for this type of uh optimism they need to seek out people that have the right messaging on this and understand where they're coming from for that messaging because you don't want like we've i alluded to at the beginning you don't want naive optimism you know that's lacks experience that lacks knowledge people think you're foolish because of it but if you if you if you actually can find you know examples and roots your 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 optimism in in, in our past, which is, has some very powerful optimistic um, events in it, then you, I think you will come, you will find it harder to fall into pessimistic states uh, as a result of this. So um, this last clip is, um, is Jordan Pearson kind of talking about the power of optimism and uh, having a realistic story around it. Okay, last clip. The case that we might just be about to uh, kill the goose that has been laying these golden eggs. Well, I think, look, I think we should, I truly think we should avoid going there. And I've thought about this a lot, watching people respond, for example, to some of the things that I've been talking about over the last few years. You know, there's a huge population of young and not so young people out there who are literally starving. No, they're metaphorically starving. They're psychologically starving for a positive but believable story. And I think that, like, as you pointed out, we could decry the state of modern politics and concern ourselves with the fact that counterproductive economic and social policies might be put in place for all sorts of ideological reasons. But I actually think a much better use of our time is in the kind of enterprise that you've already pursued, which is to produce a a robust counter narrative that's thoroughly grounded in, to the degree that that's possible, thoroughly grounded in the facts. We can say, look, 
forget it. Forget about that. Forget about the pessimism. Forget about the policies that that pessimism would drive. We could make the assumption that we can have our cake and eat it too. We can eradicate poverty. We can constrain relative inequality to the point where societies are stable, and we can produce a massive increment in environmental quality. And all that's within our gr grasp if that's what we want within the next hundred years. And I, Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, you, you've, you've devoted your, the last 30 years of your life, at least, to, to exactly that message. And I think that's a much more powerful uh, solution than being pessimistic about the counter positions. You got it. People I, need a better story. Right. You're dead right. Thank you for reminding me that that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me what it is that I think. And you need people to do that. You need to be able to go, hey, got a second. <laughs> yeah, you might you may fall into it yourself sometimes. You have a pessimistic idea and you've forgotten something you knew and we talked about this from the beginning. People forget and they need to be reminded about things. I think it's so important to, I think every everybody can relate in the sense of you, when you're around somebody that's really negative, they're pessimistic, they're always talking about something bad that happened in their life. Do you want to spend more time with that person? Do you enjoy their company? Are you thrilled to rejoin them at a later date when they call you over? The answer is no, nobody, you wanna avoid them like the plague. Like, oh, sorry, man, I, I'm, I'm busy tomorrow. I can't hang out because nobody wants to be drained continuously with this negativity that negative energy and that's why we do fundamentally need that uh, that uh, positivity that optimism but not in foolish sense because 100 percent, you know you have those people where they know a little bit and they think that they know everything then they know a bit more and then they realize they know nothing <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. those that truly know know that they know nothing at all Right. Let me say that again. Those that truly know, know that they know nothing at all. And it comes down to the point where we have to just acknowledge the limits of our human intellect. It's not infinite. It is finite. Unfortunately, we only have so much energy we have to dedicate to a certain problem until we run out. And then we got to get more food and rejuvenate ourselves. And not only with food, but with ideas, with positive energy, with surrounding ourselves with positive ideas. No, you don't want to be continuously bogged down with this negativity because that negativity eventually leads to resentment. And then that resentment leads to a hole in your life and anger and depression and it's just a cycle that's really bitter and leads to no good there is no good that comes to you once you take that to its logical conclusion so I, yeah i do think that it is important to be optimistic not in a foolish sense because we have to we can't be like that kid that just learned a, a couple things about freaking oh uh the, the evils of capitalism therefore why therefore capitalism the worst thing therefore we need to abandon all capitalism and go towards communism like don't be that foolish dude that thinks he knows everything because he because somebody told him oh uh, billionaires are evil because they gave a couple examples of some bad dudes that were billionaires and then therefore okay billionaires are the are the evil ones that we need to avoid and all that stuff yeah yeah it's well said well said <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah just to i guess uh, any, any last points you want to add there elliot that's all i had mm -hmm. yeah. 
Okay, uh, that's uh, today was the episode on the Rational Optimist, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We talked about a lot of interesting subjects, I think, just in terms of uh, environmentalism, how to approach it from a more positive perspective, how to maybe have some arguments to give towards your friends that are those negative, pessimistic types that are the doom and gloom types. You might be able to arm yourselves with facts that can present a countering narrative to them and say, hey, wait a second. No, that there are ways out of the situation. And in fact, there's evidence to show that we have improved technologically and uh, also societally from the decisions that we make on an individual basis towards moving and progressing things in the right direction. And I think that that's an important message to leave people with. And uh, if you guys like this episode, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts on Spotify. Go follow us there and follow us on our website, firstprinciplespodcast.com. Leave us some messages. Leave us some comments. Tell us what you want us to talk about. And we'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.